0: That's where we'll be at this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to say a few words about a man that some of you may know and some of you may not. But um, on February 2nd, my good friend, uh, Reverend Malcolm Hutton, went to be with the Lord. Pastor Hutton uh, was 92 years old. And so, Matt Hutton was my pastor for most of high school. So, I became a Christian summer after ninth grade and then uh, right about the same time red lane baptist my home church uh, they this is my home church now my old home church uh, they uh, called reverend hutton to come be the interim pastor and he stayed for for the better part of three years so he really was my pastor through high school and malcolm was so faithful um, pretty much nobody had been able to reach my grandfather with the gospel for 80 years until he met malcolm hutton and it was Max preaching that really helped bring my grandfather into the kingdom before he died and uh, went to be with the Lord, and I hope that they've reunited in heaven. Uh, but just an amazing preacher. He'd just break in the song in the middle of a sermon. He'd be preaching. He would just start start singing. He'd like a crooner voice. I mean, just an amazing guy. And he pastored to the very end. Died at um, 92 years old. He just stopped. Um, he just stopped pastoring. Not just preaching, but pastoring last summer. At 91, he was still pastoring at Dinwiddie Baptist Church. And so I got here to Seaford in 2011, and I asked for the history books. You know, I wanted to learn something about the church, and I start looking through. And I was absolutely shocked when I'm flipping through and I see from 1966 to 1971 that that Malcolm Hutton was the pastor here at Seaford Baptist Church. And that just blew my mind. I thought, I was going through, I said... I see this young, suave-looking guy with his hair slicked back and horn-rimmed glasses. I said, it looks, it looks like Malcolm Hutton. I looked there. it and said, Reverend Malcolm Hutton. I said, Mac was the pastor at Seaford. I, I just it blew my mind. And, and God in his providence now has me here uh, in the pulpit that Mac once filled. So I hope he's enjoying heaven. It's, it is well-done, good and faithful servant for Malcolm Hutton. And uh, we're thankful for the work he did at Seaford and the work he did for the kingdom. With that said, we're talking about the kingdom this morning, so that's where we're at, Luke 17. I I would say a lot of conflict begins with unmet expectations. Uh, A lot of times when I sit with married couples and we're doing counseling and and they're working through some issues, a lot of times it's unmet expectations that lie at the heart of the frustrations, expectations that often were not communicated up front. Uh, And so... When it comes to the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, which has been littered throughout all of Luke, I mean, one of the big themes of Luke is this controversy, this conflict, this friction between Jesus and the religious establishment. And so one of the big reasons that that friction exists is because of unmet expectations. It's not the number one reason. The number one reason is prideful unbelief. That's the number one reason there is friction between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, uh, were prideful, and they refused to believe in Christ as the Messiah and rejected him. So it was their prideful, unbelieving self-righteousness uh, that kept them from faith. But you could put unmet expectations pretty high up uh, in terms of the reasons that there, were, there was this, this headbutting going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. He did not fit the profile of the Messiah that they thought was going to come. His profile was not to their liking. Their expectations were not met. And that caused them to doubt Jesus and ultimately to despise Jesus because He didn't just not meet their expectations. He also... Was currying favor with the people. The people uh, in, in Judea, they were falling in love with Jesus. They were following Jesus around. They wanted more of his teachings. They wanted more of his miracles. They wanted more interaction with him. They wanted to know him more. And so he was gaining this large following. So not only do they think, well, this guy doesn't fit the profile of the Messiah we've been waiting for, but he's stealing attention away from us. He's stealing loyalty and devotion from the common people away from us. So they really grew to absolutely hate jesus jesus was meeting the hearts of people who were dwelling in darkness with the light and they couldn't stand it and they became jealous and bitter in their own hearts toward christ and so this morning the pharisees in their bitterness in their jealousy in their unbelief asked this question about the kingdom of god to jesus when is it going to come and all of their unmet expectations are also packed into that question. All their bitterness, all their doubts, all their desire to trap him, and all the unmet expectations. It's all there. And what's also there is their lack of understanding, their, their ignorance, their obtuseness when it came to who Jesus was and his message. So I'm going to read for us starting in verse 20. And this is kind of a two-parter. Part one this week, part two next week. So starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a God that is faithful to his own word. We just talked about uh, Pastor Mack, Lord. Uh, I know that... um, Lord, you you gave him the strength to preach hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons uh, in his time in ministry. And you do the same for for all the men who are standing in the pulpit this morning, proclaiming the one true biblical gospel. I pray you do the same for me. Give me the strength to preach. And for us as a church, Lord, give us ears to hear. And, Lord, give us eyes to see. Illuminate the word for our understanding. And uh, help us to understand a tough concept, Lord. Help us to understand the kingdom this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Pharisees, when they asked Jesus when the kingdom of God is going to come... What they don't realize is that in their effort to trap him, they're actually giving him an opportunity to teach on his favorite subject. This, by the way, just happens in Luke all the time. It's like they come thinking they've got him, and they ask him some question thinking that they're going to publicly trap him and humiliate him, and all they're really doing is just giving a stage for him to teach uh, properly on things, to articulate the Word of God to the people. And sometimes they also gave him a stage to to make scathing remarks in their direction, right? Woe to you Pharisees. So, in this case, they bring up the kingdom and Jesus is happy to talk about it. It's one of his favorite subjects. Now, for us, the idea of a kingdom is pretty foreign as Americans. When we think of kingdom, We tend to think of the monarchy that we detached from, uh, that's a very sanitized word for it, right, that we detached from during the American Revolution. The idea of submitting to a king and living in a kingdom kind of rubs up against uh, our, our very DNA as Americans. It's just not us. The idea of kingdom, it's also becoming less and less popular in the world today. There are very few parts of the world where you can go and find people who truly understand the idea of kingdom. For hundreds of years, for centuries, monarchies were the most popular form of government on the global stage. But these days, very few countries are ruled by a king or a queen who has absolute unilateral authority. In most countries where there's still a royal court, that court tends to be more of a figurehead. Uh, They provide cultural influence, they perform ceremonies that are filled with lots of pomp and circumstance. Uh, But democracy is now, and and listen, praise God for it, democracy is now the most popular form of government uh, on the earth. But with the disappearance of authoritarian kings goes the understanding of what a kingdom is. When we talk about the Lord being a king and having a kingdom, we're not talking about something that resembles democracy. We are talking about a God who rules from the heaven with absolute authority. He rules over his kingdom in majestic sovereignty. And there is no one, no one who restrains the king in his decision-making for his kingdom. God the King is totally free to do what He has planned to do from before time for the good of His own name and for the good of His kingdom. He is free to use His infinitely superior knowledge and wisdom to move the wheels of history along, making judgments based on information that He has, perfect information, information that if we just got a sliver of it, it would break our finite brains. And when we talk about this God and his kingdom, we're really talking about two realms. We're talking about the physical realm, his physical kingdom, and his spiritual kingdom. The physical kingdom of God is the material created universe. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, "...the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers." In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And that rule extends throughout all of history. In Psalm 145, the psalmist says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now we know that because of what happened in the garden, that this kingdom, the physical realm, has fallen. The Lord gave Adam and Eve all the trees of the garden except for one. He told them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot of people say he did this in order to give humans free will. I think we spend way too much time thinking about the idea of our wills being free, if I'm being honest with you. God loved Adam and Eve. And he gave them this one tree and this one rule because he wanted them to show him that they loved him too. and and to show that love through obedience. But they sinned against him. They ate from the tree. They broke the rule. And when they did that, this world, this physical realm, became corrupted. And now Adam and Eve definitely did not have free will. They were only free within their nature. And their treason uh, against God that they had committed, it, it now made their nature to be bound by sin. And so they were only free within their sinful nature, which is really not free at all. In fact, all of God's physical realm was now cursed because of sin and the death that sin brought with it. One day, God's going to make all this right. His Son is going to cast Satan and his demons and, and all who oppose him, all who have continued on with Satan in rebellion against Christ, they will all be cast into the lake of fire. We talked about that when we were uh, looking at the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16. And it's good for us to define the physical kingdom of God, but that's not what's being talked about in this passage. Jesus here is focused on his spiritual kingdom, not the physical. The kingdom that he says is not of this world. And just as the Lord is sovereign over his physical kingdom, he is sovereign over his spiritual kingdom. He decides who enters it and who does not. He rules over every heart of every citizen of the kingdom with the presence of His Holy Spirit in their lives. And He has established the church to live under Christ's authority and to be a witness for this kingdom. The kingdom can be a tough thing to talk about because as Jesus is about to teach us, it is invisible. So it can be hard to talk about. It's it's, it's harder to talk about than this table here. This table, I can see it, I can describe it. But uh, Graham Goldsworthy gives us a really good definition that's helpful for us. He says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place living under God's rule. Now for my money, it's the best definition of the spiritual kingdom of God that I have ever heard. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place living under God's rule. And at this time in history, the church, God's people, live in God's place in community together under God's rule under the authority of Christ who is the head of the church. And as we live under Christ's rule together, we look forward to the day when Jesus returns, because on that day, the kingdom will not just be spiritual, it will be realized. The king is going to come back, and he is going to establish his kingdom on the new earth once and for all, without the curse of sin and death. So that's the subject matter here in these two verses. Jesus is discussing his spiritual kingdom, and then next week in verses 22 through 37, he's explaining what is going to occur when that kingdom is finally realized in the second coming. So let me just give a little bit of a review of a timeline of biblical theology before we go forward and we talk more about the spiritual kingdom. God establishes His spiritual kingdom in His creation of Adam and Eve in His image. They were God's people living in God's place under God's rule. The harmony of the kingdom is broken in the garden when they sin against God and they rebel against God. And then that sin continues on throughout the generations of humanity. And and then the king himself is sent to show us what the kingdom is like in his teaching and in his life. And then he dies at the hands of his enemies in order to save sinners and bring them into the kingdom, thus fixing the brokenness that occurred in the garden. During the age of the church... God has been and God is saving people and adding them to his invisible spiritual kingdom one by one, soul by soul, heart by heart, through the power of the good news of the gospel. And now the citizens of the kingdom have the job of trying to make the invisible kingdom visible, as John Calvin said, by seeking to live in love like Christ. And then one day Jesus is going to return and the invisible kingdom will be made visible Forever, glory to God. But none of that is what the Pharisees expected. And therein lies the problem in this passage. This is not how they understood the history of redemption to be unfolding. This is not how they understood the plan of God. Here's what the Pharisees expected. Not all of them Uh, Or or I should say, uh, not just them, but all of the Israelites, really. All the Israelites who were going to synagogue, who were worshiping there, who were learning there, they all would have had this expectation, that before the Messiah came, Israel would undergo a time of intense tribulation. So you can imagine that as they are under the thumb of the Roman Empire, a lot of those Israelites are leaving synagogue and thinking, the Messiah must be coming soon, because we are going through a period of intense tribulation. In the midst of that tribulation, a prophet like Elijah would come along predicting the Messiah. Then the Messiah would show up and vindicate the people of Israel and establish his kingdom. Now here is where Jesus and the Pharisees broke from one another. So far, in those first two things I said, Messiah is going to come, but before he does, there's going to be this intense tribulation in Israel, and then in the midst of that tribulation, a prophet like Elijah, i.e. John the Baptist, is going to come along as the forerunner for the Messiah. So far, you're like, yep, that sounds good. But then you get to this part that the Messiah is going to show up and vindicate Israel and establish his kingdom, and that is where the Pharisees and others thought that, hey, once the Messiah gets here... He's going to march into Rome and he's going to drag Caesar off of his throne and he is going to set Israel up as the center of the earth and all the nations are going to get angry and they're going to try to fight the Messiah and they're going to lose that fight and then Israel will be the kingdom on the earth and all the nations will actually come to Israel to worship there. And the Messiah will destroy all who oppose him. And Jerusalem will be restored to glory, and the Jewish people scattered throughout the world would return to Jerusalem. All nations would be subject to the authority of the Messiah, and as the Messiah reigns, there would be eternal peace and joy. That was their understanding. That was their expectation. So when the Pharisees say, when is the kingdom of God going to come? They're looking at Jesus and saying, okay, you say you're the Messiah, when are you going to overthrow Rome? And when are you going to fight the nations that rebel against you? And when are you going to bring all the Jewish people back to Jerusalem? And when are you going to restore Jerusalem to glory? And when are you going to inaugurate eternal peace? Now, if Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to do all that real soon, just like you said. Or I'm going to do all of that now then they're going to be happy to see Rome defeated and the Jewish nation restored to independence and eternal bliss. And so they're going to say, well, do it, Jesus. And if he says, I'm not going to do any of that, well, then he can't be the Messiah, and so then they can invalidate him. So for them, it seems like it's a win-win. Either Jesus is the Messiah, and he does the things that they want him to do, or he says no, and then they can mock him, and they can ruin his reputation with everyone and get the people to stop following him. But they don't understand the fact that they don't understand. They're ignorant even about their own ignorance here. They don't understand God's actual plan. They think they've got it all figured out, but they don't. And so the king of the kingdom is now going to explain that to them. Jesus says to them, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. You're not going to be able to say, well, it's over here, or it's there. there. Because it's not something that you can see the way you can see the sun or the way you can see the moon. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what they expected. They wanted signs they could point to to say, all right, well, here comes the kingdom. And Jesus is telling them that you can't see the kingdom right now. You're not going to be able to point to overthrown Romans and a restored Jerusalem and say, hey, the kingdom has come. Not in his first coming. And the Pharisees didn't understand the kingdom because they were sinners. They, they were resistant to the truth. The kingdom is only going to be understood by those who have the spiritual eyes to see. The Pharisees were like the natural men that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If they were going to see the kingdom, well, they needed to be born again. Which is exactly what Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, it's not always going to be this way. The spiritual kingdom of Jesus is not always going to be invisible. One day He's going to come back, and when He does, everybody's going to see that the King is coming. The kingdom will be visible for all eyes to see. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In Revelation 1, the the Apostle John says that all eyes will see. And so this is... When Jesus will do what the prophets expected him to do. In his first coming, he was meek and he was mild. But in his second coming, he will be a warrior seen by all, overthrowing every enemy. And then this will be the result Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. After Jesus returns, the new earth will come and the new Jerusalem will be the crown jewel of its addresses. And this is what the Jewish people expected. This is what the prophets taught them. But it's going to happen on God's timetable, not the Pharisees' timetable, not anybody else's timetable. And until that day, when the kingdom is made visible, it will continue to grow invisibly, soul by soul, person by person, as the Lord adds to His kingdom by saving people through the blood of his son Jesus. But when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about the kingdom, look what he says. And this is a pretty jarring statement. He says, "Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you." When he says behold, that's a listen word. That's what he means there. Listen up. Whenever Jesus says behold, you know that whatever's coming after is really important. So he says, "Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you." Now, to get down to the bottom of this, we need to take a look at the original language. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek, and the Greek word for midst is intos. It means inside of. You see it used in Matthew 23. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, intos, and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So, what is Jesus saying then? Is he saying the kingdom of God is inside unbelieving Pharisees? When when he says in verse 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, intos, inside of you, is he really saying that? The kingdom of God is in these rebellious, hard-hearted Pharisees? Well, that, that, that makes no sense, right? They're not born again. He just told Nicodemus, You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So we can rule that out. So it seems like Jesus is speaking more generally here about where the kingdom is located, not specifically talking about the Pharisees, but generally saying that the kingdom is internal in the hearts of those who believe and follow him. It exists in the hearts of those whom the king dwells in, in hearts where all rights have been surrendered to Christ as Lord. And hearts where he is worshipped as the king. That is where the kingdom is until he returns. And the kingdom is made visible. And and the kingdom in the hearts of his people is marked by the transformation it brings to those hearts. So in Romans 14, verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is there righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit in your heart? Then you're in His spiritual kingdom. In John 14, verse 17 and in verse 23, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to Him and make our home with him does god's spirit live in you is that made obvious by how you keep the word is that made obvious by how you're loved by the father and how you love the father and how you love jesus if the answer is yes then you're in his spiritual kingdom as people turn away from their sin and they put their faith in the king they receive the kingdom and understand, this was Jesus' message. So in Mark 1, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. You say, what's he gonna say? Right? Every week I sit down and I think, how am I gonna start the sermon? That's the hardest part sometimes. Go with the illustration, go with the review, go with a quote. How am I gonna start the sermon, right? So how does Jesus start his first sermon as he begins his preaching ministry? Well, in Mark 1. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you wanted to boil all of Jesus' teaching ministry down to one statement, this would be a good one. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand because the king had arrived. Repent. Turn away from sin, and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of God's plan of salvation. And so then Jesus is uh, he, he lives this perfect life. He dies on the cross for sinners. He rises from the grave victorious over sin and death. He is about to ascend into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. And before he does this, in Acts 1, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and listen to what he's teaching, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, he begins his ministry talking about the kingdom, and then as he is ending his his earthly ministry in his first coming, and he's about to ascend, what's the final things that he is saying to his disciples? What are the final words he's given to the apostles before he sends them out? He's teaching them about the same thing he started with the kingdom of God. And then they're going to go and be witnesses for that kingdom. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So then you keep reading through the book of Acts, which when we finish Luke, that's where we're going. So you keep reading through Acts, and there is this thread throughout the work of the apostles in the book of Acts. Acts 12, or Acts 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Philip's out there preaching in Acts 8. What's he preaching? Good news of the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 19, Paul as he entered and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, Acts 28, verse 23, again about Paul. When they had an, appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So, Jesus, the King, is sent by the Father. He comes. He preaches the kingdom. He does the saving work so people can enter the kingdom. He's about to leave. He commissions his apostles to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom with the Spirit dwelling in their hearts, empowering their witness. And now, the book of Acts has come to a close. We are 2,000 years in the church history. And you and I are doing the exact same work. We are, as the church, a part of the kingdom. We're God's people. We're living in God's place in the community of the local church under God's rule, the authority of Christ, who is the head of the church, and as members of the kingdom. Our allegiance, first and foremost, is not to any earthly kingdom In fact, we have no home address here. The book of Hebrews says we have no lasting city here. We are exiles in a foreign land. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We will not be in our final home Until Jesus returns and the kingdom is made visible. When Katie's grandmother passed away this past summer, and her pastor stood there right before they lowered her casket, and there was a lot of tears, a lot of of mixed emotions, right? We're happy for her, but we're grieving. Pastor Brad said that this is Pat Lewis's final resting place until the resurrection and that's exactly what it is it was her final resting place for her body not for her soul but for her body until the resurrection when the kingdom is made visible and she will be resurrected and she will be like jesus the scripture says and she would live under his reign forever and so is the story for all of us we will not have our final home. Until that resurrection takes place and the kingdom is made visible. And then settle in. For all the eternity. Settle in. And that is going to be glory. But until that day comes, we are foreigners living in a strange and fallen land. Just like the apostles Before. And we are witnesses in that land. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here's the picture then. The local church is like an embassy. An embassy is the base for a country's diplomatic interests in a foreign nation. So for example, right now we have a A skirmish developing between Russia and the Ukraine. I would say that's a a very light word to use, right? It's a serious situation over there. Our U.S. embassy in the Ukraine, which is looking after the diplomatic interests of Americans in that nation, just told all the U.S. citizens, get out. Get out while you can get out. Why would they issue that message? Because they are concerned about the interests of the United States in that nation. And the best thing for the citizens of the United States and that nation right now is to leave, is to find a new place to be. Well, we are citizens of the kingdom of God in the foreign nation of this fallen world. The local church is our home base. It's the embassy. The local church looks out for the interests of the kingdom in this world until the king returns so the local church is concerned about God's glory. The local church is concerned about saved souls. The local church is concerned about holiness. And so we come together as the church. We come together as citizens of the kingdom. We worship. We're fed. We're built up. We're reminded of what's important for the kingdom, and then we are sent out. We go out into the world as ambassadors, and and, and we are sent out by the embassy to represent the kingdom in the foreign nation of this fallen world. It's the same work the apostles were doing in the book of Acts. Acts. He's commissioned us for the same work that he commissioned them for, to preach the gospel of this kingdom, to spread its message. Because as we do that, souls are saved and the invisible kingdom grows. The invisible kingdom expands. And this will continue on until Jesus comes back. And so here's what this means for you and I. We have to remain focused on the task at hand. We have to remain focused on the kingdom interests. When we pick it up next week in verse 22, Jesus is going to begin to explain the signs that the kingdom is being made visible. That day is going to come. The Son of Man will appear like lightning. Like the days of Noah, God's wrath will rain down like rain, like floodwaters upon the earth. Like the days of Lot, fire will fall from the heavens. It will be sudden. It will be final. And when that happens, the time for ambassador work is going to be over. We're going to joyfully enter into the promised land of eternity together. We are going to live in the light of the Lamb's glory forever. And it's going to be awesome. But the impending arrival of the visible kingdom reminds us that we have a finite amount of time to tell people the news of the kingdom now. The work of evangelism is a finite work. It's not going to go on forever. It's a privilege given to the people of God to be ambassadors for the kingdom. It's a privilege for us to be given the task of telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And one day, that privileged work will come to a close. You talk about mission work. Mission work is finite work. We, we do mission work in order to spread the worship of Jesus all over the world so that hearts that do not know Him will come to know Him and give Him the glory that He is due. That's what drives the mission's train. Even beyond saved souls, it's the worship and the glory of Christ. Once the kingdom comes visibly in the return of Christ, the time to give and to go and to pray for missions will be over. The citizens of heaven will be in their prepared home, beginning an eternity's worth of praise and service to their king. But at the end of chapter 17, we're going to see that the unbelieving will be left asking, where is the Lord? I think so often we are intimidated by the idea of being ambassadors for the kingdom, of doing evangelism. Because we're scared people are going to reject us. We're scared people are going to make fun of us. We're scared people are going to ask us a question we don't know the answer to. We're scared that people will call us a hypocrite. All of those things might happen. But they're all smoke screens that Satan uses to get our minds off the reality that we're kingdom people with a kingdom message and an unfinished kingdom task. The kingdom of God is God's people and God's place and God's rule and it's going to grow and it's going to expand invisibly as each individual human heart places its faith in King Jesus. Let us invite people in. Let us not fall for Satan's tricks of trying to get us to live in fear. This is a privilege we have. This is good news that we have. Let's go and share it with people. Let's go and tell people. Through our spirit-empowered witness, let's be catalysts for the expansion of the kingdom. This is what Jesus did. And this is what he is calling us to do. I remember watching a show about the British monarchy. And um, by the way, I think that the Queen of England just celebrated 70 years, which is amazing. Uh, I don't know your opinion on her. I think she's a pretty amazing woman. I don't think you'll get mad at me about that. I don't know. You never know what people are get mad about these days. Um, but I, I, I love the Queen. And uh, if, you, if you know anything about her, there are these times in her life where she would go on these tours around the kingdom. She'd go to Australia, right? She'd she'd go to all the different places where uh, the British monarchy had territory, and she would go to the different parts of the kingdom. And as she went, it was about spreading the goodwill of the kingdom. It was about letting people know that the queen is alive and well and loves them. We have the opportunity to do something much more majestic and powerful than that. We get to go... And we get to tell people that the King, not just of England or of any nation on the earth, but of the entire universe, who created them in his image, who has a plan for their life, that he has a way of salvation offered up to them. That they can be saved out of the darkness of sin, that they can be saved out of the grip of sin, that they can be saved from an eternity of hell this is a privilege and so let us go and let us go with excitement and let us go with intentionality even today as you go if you're going to go to lunch after this somewhere going out to eat let your server know that you would love to pray for them that you would love to go to the king of the kingdom in prayer ask if there's anything you pray for him about invite him to church start the work The ambassador work now. We have a sign out here, and I'll close with this, that as you leave our uh, parking lot this morning, you have a sign that says, you are now entering the mission field. Be his workmanship. That is what we must do. Represent the kingdom and represent the king. Let's pray. Father God, we have proclaimed your death this morning. Uh, through communion. And the Apostle Paul says in that passage that as we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. We're going to keep doing that, Lord, with communion. We're going to do it again this Wednesday, but it's more than just this supper table. It's more than just the Lord's table, Lord. I pray that we would proclaim your death until you come in our words, and our living, and our actions. Lord, help us to be kingdom ambassadors and to represent the king of the kingdom well. Give us the words to say and give us the people that need to hear it. Pray for divine appointments even this week, God, that you would put lost people in the path of our church members, whether it's through Upward Basketball, whether it's through their workplace, Lord, whether it's just at the grocery store, whatever, and that the good news would be on our lips and that we would be ready to tell. Lord, make us good ambassadors. Glorify yourself through your church as we represent the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.